Whenever someone comes to see Chelsea and I and the rest of our family for the first time here in wonderful Nelson County, especially in the evening, my standard reply to them is, the light will be on and food will be on the table. Just look for the light on the sign by the road and the light in the house on the hill. You'll probably pass it the first time, but at least you'll know where it is. Oftentimes, lights in our houses are used to help people navigate their way to us, to where we live. They're a signal that, well, we're home. Some of you know this. You have fancy technology that actually turns your lights on and off for you when you're far away from your homes in order to make other people think that someone is there. It's really a simple observation, right? Not anything groundbreaking here. That lights often indicate someone is here. And yet, it's relevant to our text this morning. As we turn our attention to Leviticus chapter 24 in the first nine verses. What we'll find is that God wants his people to ensure that his lights are on. That there's food on his table. He wants to communicate to the people of Israel that he is home, that he is hosting. I tried to summarize what I think is the the main idea of this text, and you have it there before you, that God is present with his people, in relationship with his people, and honored by his people. And so the exhortation, if you are a Christian, follows on the heels of that. Enjoy God and live in the light of his presence. And if you are not a Christian, the exhortation is to enter into relationship with Jesus. You can see your outline there before you. Don't get intimidated. I know it's usually only three points. Uh, that's not true. There's often 10 like there are here today. I've just given you an expanded version because I thought it would be helpful. So, so don't get afraid and think, oh no, this is going to take two or three hours. No, no. Let's pray and we will begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together here to honor you. We thank you for the opportunity to belong to Christ and also to one another because of our common faith in him. Lord, we pray that we would enjoy this great privilege. We pray that you would be honored in our gathering together here. We ask that you might clear our minds so that we might hear you speak. We ask that you might change and soften our hearts so that we might be changed by your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us up so that we might know the joy you intend for us to have. Indeed, Christ came so that we might have life and have it to the full. Teach us this day once more to turn away from our sins and run into the open arms of the Lord Jesus who reconciles us to you. It's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Last week, we covered the final festival outlined for us in Leviticus chapter 23, and if you remember, it was the Feast of Booths. 
And one of the, the parts of the Feast of Booths was the ingathering of the harvest. And so it's actually a really nice transition between chapter 23 and chapter 24. Got the harvest there, and now in chapter 24, at the beginning, Moses is going to tell the people what to do with some of the products from that harvest, specifically oil and grain. These products of the ground, these, these fruits of the people's labor, are going to be used to illumine the house of God and to put food on his table. But before we talk about Leviticus 24 and, and the function of the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, we want to talk about God's house, his tabernacle palace, um, first. And so uh, if you remember, his, his tabernacle palace, his little tent, has just two rooms. And the first room is a little bit bigger, and it is called the holy place. It has three pieces of furniture in it. Right? The table with the bread of presence on it, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. Then you go back into the back room, it's a little bit smaller, and you have the holy of holies. And there's just one piece of furniture in there, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is the most important piece of furniture. It was this uh, box-like structure made of precious metals, and then it was covered in gold. This may or may not help you, but it helps me. I think of uh, what a chocolate-covered pretzel is like, like one of the rods where you just can't even see the pretzel that's covered in chocolate. That's the art. You can't even see the boxiness of it. You see the shape of the box, obviously, but it's covered in gold. And the gold is a, a precious material that speaks about the holiness and the majesty and the worthiness of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, on the, on the side of the box, there were golden rings that were complemented by golden poles that could slide through them so that the ark could be moved. You didn't, you didn't touch the ark because you might die. It was a holy object. And it was holy because it was thought that God, His very presence, was enthroned upon the ark between these two cherubim that were bowing down before Him don't remember what a cherubim is. It's an angelic-type creature. Remember, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, a cherubim guards the way back into the garden with a flaming and twirling sword. These are mighty beings, heavenly beings, and they are bowing down before the God of heaven. One commentator notes that Israel was forbidden from creating an image of God, and so they did the best they could by creating those beings closest to him. So we can see the, the angelic hosts bowing down to the presence of their king. The ark, in, in many ways, is like a throne of God. It is the, the meeting place between heaven and earth. Indeed, the, the holy of holies is a, is a type of Eden where God is present with his people. The ark is the center of gravity of God's presence. It's the focal point where God's presence is most localized. Next piece of furniture we see, you can also read about it in Exodus 25. I'm sorry, Exodus 30, this one, is the altar of incense. The altar of incense was also dipped in gold, made of precious materials. It had four horns on the corners of it. It was about three feet high and a foot and a half wide. And so splitting apart the two rooms, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, was a curtain. 
And so right in front of that curtain was the altar of incense. Altar of incense was lit at the morning and in the evening, and it would fill up the place with smoke and, well, the smell of incense. The purpose of it was to cover up the smell of dead animals which were being slaughtered outside. It was also to obscure the priest's vision so that they might not accidentally look back into the Holy of Holies and see the ark at a time when they are not supposed to. And it was thought that the smoke that rose up from the altar of incense represented the prayers of the people continually going up before God. Now we come to the third and fourth pieces of furniture. The pieces that are at the forefront of our text today, the the lampstand and the table. We'll start with the table and we'll read the description of it in Exodus chapter 25 starting in verse 23. You are to construct a a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding all around it. Make a three-inch frame all around it and make a gold molding for it all around its frame. Make four gold rings for it and attach the rings to the four corners at its four legs. The rings should be next to the frame as holders for poles to carry the table. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table can be carried by them. You are also to make its plates and cups as well as its pitchers and bowls for pouring drink offerings. Make them out of pure gold. Put the bread of presence on the table before me at all times. This table really is extravagant, but it is not the table that the table is about. The table is mostly about what is on top of it. The bread of presence that is before the Lord at all times. Bread of presence was made of 12 loaves of bread. You had uh, these just round kind of cakes of bread, would be loaves, and they would be stacked on top of one another, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It would be set out fresh weekly, And then the old bread would be removed on the Sabbath and eaten by the priests in the holy place. Next, we come to the lampstand, and we read about it in Exodus 25, verse 31. You were to make a lampstand out of pure hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece. Its base and its shaft, its ornamental cups and buds and petals, six branches are to extend from its side, three branches of the lampstand from one side, and three branches from the lampstand to the other side. There are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on one branch, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on the next branch. It is to be this way for six branches that extend from the lampstand. There are to be four cups shaped like almond blossoms on the lampstand shaft, along with its buds and petals. For the six branches that extend from the lampstand, a bud must be under the first pair of branches from it, a bud under the second pair of branches from it, and a bud under the third pair of branches from it. Their buds and branches are to be of one piece. All of it is to be a single hammered piece of pure gold. Make its seven lamps and set them up so that they may illumine the area in front of it. Its snuffers and firepans must be of pure gold. The lampstand, with all these utensils, is to be made from 75 pounds of pure gold. 
Be careful to make them according to the pattern you have been shown on the mountain. So this lampstand is quite extravagant. It's not something that you're picking up at Ikea. It is a fantastic piece. And it illumines the household of God. It will be set up across from the bread of presence. And the point of it was, was quite simple. It was to turn on the lights in God's house. To show that God is home. That He is present with His people. And this is a big deal. Because remember, the presence of God, fellowship with God, is what was lost when the people were cast out of Eden. And so, by this lampstand, what it is declaring is that God is living with and among His people, despite their impurities and despite their sin. Well, how is He doing that? And Well, Leviticus is telling us, through the sacrificial system. We've learned that through the sacrificial system, sin would be atoned for and cleansed. So the lamp showed the people that, that God is home and among them. And surely this tree that would, would remind them, remember this thing is shaped like a tree, it's got six branches, probably an almond tree, would certainly remind them when placed next to the throne of God and the cherubim and these heavenly hosts of Eden and the tree of life. God illumines his home with a tree of light. So that when the Israelites in the evening or just before dawn or if they were up in the middle of the night would look to the center of their camp and see the glow coming from God's palace, they would be reminded that he had not abandoned them to their sin. That indeed God was living among them. God is present with His people. He's home. This is the function of the lampstand. To declare that God, He really is here. He really is present with us and among us. What about the table? What is the function of the table? Well, let's turn and look, look at Leviticus 24. We'll read all nine verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, Command the Israelites to bring you pure oil from crushed olives for the light in order to keep the lamp burning regularly. You'll notice that they are to do this regularly, continually. It comes up over and over again. Aaron is to tend it continually from evening until morning before the Lord outside the curtain of testimony in the tent of meeting. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. He must continually tend the lamps on the pure gold lampstand in the Lord's presence. God wants to make it clear that he is home in the evening. These lamps must be lit. Take fine flour and bake it into 12 loaves. Each loaf is to be made with four quarts. Arrange them in two rows, six to a row. Pile is a better translation here. On the pure gold table before the Lord. 
Place pure frankincense near each pile or row, likely in a dish. You heard those dishes in Exodus. So that it may serve as a memorial portion for the bread and a fire offering to the Lord. Remember, they would take this frankincense and they would put it out and offer it to the Lord as part of their worship. The bread is to be set out before the Lord every Sabbath day as a permanent covenant, an obligation on the part of the Israelites. It belongs to Aaron and his sons, who are to eat it in a holy place. For it is the holiest portion for him from the fire offerings to the Lord. This is a permanent rule. So go, well, We understand God has his lights on. It's communicating that he's present with the people. But why does God need a table with bread on it? Is it because he needs to eat? Is God like one of these false gods of the pagans where they set food out before him and then pretend that he eats it and and takes it away? And then take it away? No. No, that's demonstrated by the fact that they only offer the food once a week. And we know from Acts 17 and Paul's message to the Athenians, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Why why then bread of presence? Once more, it is a, a sign of the covenant. It is a sign of God's provision for the people in the wilderness. And it is a representation of the people before God, in covenant with God. Bread was a, a very common um, item at meals. It was a, a staple. And so it is especially appropriate as a covenant sign. Because covenants in the ancient Near East were often sealed by eating a meal. And so in this case, what would happen is the, the priest ate the bread on, uh, on the Lord's table. They were eating it on behalf of the people, thus confirming the covenant again as they did so. You can probably remember the, the first time that this happened a little bit back in Exodus 24. We talked about it as a wedding ceremony between God and his people. They entered into it by word, blood, and food. The people committed themselves to following God's law, to to being his people. And to confirm that covenant, they shared a meal before him on the holy mountain. Exodus 24.11 tells us, They saw God. They ate and drank. And so the, the picture that the bread of presence is giving to us is one of God dwelling with his people and welcoming them into his home and around his table. The bread of presence serves as a reminder that every person from every family of every tribe in Israel has a seat at the king's table. God is not merely present with his people. He's not merely home. He's hosting them. He's welcoming them into his presence. This is really important. God is is not just in the camp and aloof. He's in the camp and involved. 
maybe think of it this way. Have you ever been in the room with someone who wasn't in the room? You know what I'm talking about? You know, you're, you're, you're sitting around in the living room and somebody, the, the other people that you're in the room with, you know, or person, has their, their face just, just buried in their cell phone or, or a book. Maybe they're watching TV. They're in the room with you, but they're not really interested in engaging you with conversation or having a relationship with you. Right? They're, they're, they're in the room, but they're not in the room. They're present, but, but they're not present. God is not like that. He is present, and he's engaged. He's really in the room. He's in the camp, and he's invited the people around his table into intimacy with him. The, the tabernacle teaches us, yes, of God's holy transcendence, but also of his eminent love for his people. God is home, and he welcomes his people into his presence when they come to him by faith. This is extraordinary. So we see this picture of God welcoming his people before him. And we see his people serving him. In verses 1 through 9 of Leviticus 24, we see that, that the people are tasked with bringing pure olives, or pure olives, pure olive oil from crushed olives, and very fine wheat from the grain, so that God's lamp can stay on, and that there will be food on the table. And their continual service to God expresses the fact that He is their King, and that they are His servants. They are happily obeying Him. See, you can, you can, you can see the image. You have the King's servants serving the King in His holy palace. Yes, he's home and he's in relationship with his people and he is served by his people. He's honored by them and in them. So what, what has this to do with us? How does this map out onto our Christianity? Well, first, we understand that the tabernacle in its entirety is fulfilled in Jesus. We visited this text last week, and it's important to reiterate it again this week, John chapter 1, verse 14. We're told that Jesus, who's identified as the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there for dwelt is tabernacled. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and so what is being told to us in John is that God has come to be with us. God has not just come among His people in Christ. He's come as one of His people. God, the, the creator of the universe, the king of creation, becomes what he was not while never ceasing to be what he was. 
God the Son becomes killable so that he might die for those who would seek to kill him. The king comes to die on behalf of traitors. Indeed, this is, this is why God became a man. This is why Jesus became a man, so that he might die for the sins of all who put their faith in him. Indeed, in Christ, God came to dwell among us. We also see from the vantage point of the lampstand that Jesus is the light. In John uh, chapter 8, verse 12, he, he declares that he is the light of the world. And what makes this statement even more dramatic is the context in which he states it. He says this during the Feast of Booths. Yes, the feast we studied just last week. And you see, a tradition had grown up around the Feast of Booths, one that I did not tell you about last week because I intended to tell you about it this week. You see, as the people uh, constructed their temporary shelters and lived in them to remind themselves of traveling in the wilderness as they made their way to the promised land, they also, in the evening, would take a menorah, a tree-like lampstand, and light it. And then lead it around Jerusalem in a procession as a reminder of how God led them through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so it's in this context that Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying, I am. I am the presence of God among you. I am the light in the darkness. The light shines and the darkness has not overcome it. Come to me and you will never walk in darkness again. Jesus promises life and light to all, whoever follows him. He will bring whoever follows him into the presence of Almighty God. He is the one mediator between God and man. And it is in him we must trust if we are to have relationship with God. Jesus says that he will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And he has accomplished this wonderful reality by way of the tree of Calvary. The tree of Eden brought darkness as Adam disobeyed God's instruction about the tree. The tree of light 
the lampstand, signaled God's presence among his people and his resolve to not abandon them to the darkness of his right judgment. And the tree of Calvary, well, it brought the darkness of God's wrath down upon the second Adam. Jesus obeyed God about the tree. It is because of his obedience that we can have our sins forgiven. It is because of his substitutionary death on behalf of all those who will repent of sin and trust in him that we can have life and light. Indeed, the tree of Calvary is transformed into a tree of life for those who will put their faith in the king who was enthroned upon it. Jesus is the light of the world. The very presence of God. Jesus is present with us. And Jesus welcomes us. Turn our attention to another text we visited last week in, in John 6. Remember, the crowd is gathered around Jesus and they want to believe in him. But they say, if we are to see and believe in you, we're going to need a sign. God gave our ancestors manna in the wilderness. And so what manna do you give to us? What sign do you give to us so that we might see and believe? And this is what Jesus says in John 6, 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says, I am the manna. I am God's provision. I am the bread of life. The very one who brings the people of God into his presence and around his table. Whoever comes to me, Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus welcomes whoever will come to him around the table of God. Really is incredible. Verse 37 All that the Father gives, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Just two wonderful truth, truths. The God's splendid sovereignty and salvation, his love for his people that, that he gives them to Christ. And 
that whoever comes will never be cast out. Whoever can come to Christ can have eternal life. Whoever. Every person who comes to Jesus has a place in the family of God and a seat at the table of God. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know my sins. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But God, I'm I'm hard-hearted. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But but I have nothing to offer. My whole life is a mess. It's a, a constant ruin. I have nothing to bring with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But I have betrayed you and deserve death. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But I have followed my heart day after day, ignoring your word. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Hear that, Christian. Jesus says to you, if you have come to him, I will never cast you out. Never. Non-Christian. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger and pursed lips, but open arms and a wide smile. He welcomes you to come to him, to call him your king and your Lord, to be obedient to his command, to be baptized and to be in fellowship with the rest of his people. He invites you into his family to come around his table. Christian, what a wonderful, wonderful delight we have. What a wonderful blessing it is to enjoy obeying the commands of God. Oh, how we are blessed by our fellowship with one another. How wonderful it is to portray the union we have with one another and with Christ as we, as we gather around the feast of God's Word. As we sing about God's glory. As we come together around God's table. and Partake of the bread and the cup, which are merely a foretaste of the great marriage supper of the Lamb, which is to come when death is no more and mourning has been silenced forever. What a wonderful promise Jesus gives to us as He welcomes us to Himself and around His table. Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Oh, friend, Jesus is present and He welcomes whoever will come. And if you are a Christian, something else even more preposterous has happened to you. You see, in the Old Covenant, God was was with His people. And in the New Covenant, Covenant, He's come as one of His people. In the Old Covenant, God lived in in the camp, but now in the new covenant, when our faith is in Christ, God lives in us. In you. 
Paul makes this point plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And what a wonderful summary of the Christian life. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. But you see what Paul's saying. He's saying, God now dwells in His people so that every believer, every Christian is a mini-tabernacle. A mini-tent of meeting. And so we bring honor and glory to God by acknowledging His presence in our lives. By living in obedience to His Word. This, is, this truth is just so incredible. I mean, Paul reiterates it. I guess he says it the first time. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you, y'all, plural, are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? The same Jesus who said, I am the light of the world, also said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You see, the presence of a king will dramatically change how you live. When the light of the world comes to take residence within you, the holy glow of Christ will beam out of you. All of us are to be mini tabernacles telling one another in the world about the God who has come to have relationship with His people. The God who welcomes whoever will come to Him. Does God's presence impact your daily living? If God's presence does not impact your daily living, don't know that you know Him. The presence of a king dramatically impacts the lives of his people. We see it throughout Leviticus. I mean, the Israelites, I mean, they can't plan a vacation without consulting what God has put on their calendar already. Everything from their major occasions, their special occasions, their holidays, all the way down to what clothes they wear, what food they eat, and where they go, revolves around their king and what he has commanded. And we see it, see it in our text. That the people have to bring pure oil from crushed olives and grain. And, and the priests have to tend the lampstands and, and remove the bread and put out, out new bread. God, God's concerned with these, these small details. I mean, 
crushing olives on stone mortar and then pouring out the oil, the purest of oil, oil fit for a king, and taking it to a temple regularly uh, along with fine grain. You're milling the fine grain and then taking it. This is not thrilling work. Trimming wicks and lighting lamps, it's not exciting. Changing out the bread of presence, it's, it's all it's all. Ordinary. And yet because the Lord has called for these things, these tasks became holy tasks that were well-pleasing to Him. Anything done in faithfulness to the call of a holy king becomes a holy task. Anything done in faithfulness to the call of a holy king becomes a holy task, no matter how ordinary it might seem. This is crucial for us to remember because the ordinary is where life takes place. So much of our lives are lived amid the mundane. God has called us to faithfulness in those ordinary tasks. And those ordinary tasks become holy tasks to which God has called us. The job you work in order to provide for your family is a holy task. Raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a holy task. Giving generously to those in need is a holy task. Inviting others into your home to share your food around your table. Taking food to those who need it because, you know, they they had another baby. You know, to serve them is, is a holy task. Giving yourself to the word of God and prayer is a holy task. Gathering together on Sunday morning is a holy task. refusing to get angry and complain and snap at the person who has wronged you is a holy task. Examples could be multiplied. Anything done in faithfulness to the call of a holy king becomes a holy task, no matter how ordinary it might seem. And so, friends, I exhort you to honor God in the ordinary of your everyday life. Honor the king who is present with his people, who welcomes his people around his table, and who deserves to be honored by his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, for calling us to yourself, We confess this morning that we have sinned. We rejoice that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Your grace is stronger than darkness. Your mercies are new every morning. The fountain 
of joy that you give to those who know you never runs dry. Indeed, those who come to Christ are spiritually satisfied. We pray that you would help us to drink deeply of the delights of knowing Jesus. To eat heartily of your holy word so that we might know you more and our joy in you would continue to flourish. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.